Welcome to Fucking Cancelled, a podcast about what the left is like, what to do about it, and what it'll be like once we've done it. In today's episode, we're joined by Jason Miles, frontman of the band Bitter Lake and co-host of the popular socialist podcast, This Is Revolution. We talk about the ways that race reductionism can obscure class, the kneecapping of Bernie Sanders' campaign by the Democrat establishment, and how capitalist realism ate punk rock. So welcome back to fucking canceled. Welcome back to fucking canceled. Um, today we're here with Jason Miles, who is a writer. Um, he's the front man of the metal band Bitter Lake, and he's the co-host of the podcast This Is Revolution. How's it going, Jason? It's going great. And I just want to say I love it when I get mentioned for doing music because I've been mm. doing music forever. And but the only reason why I have a podcast is because of my lifetime doing music and touring all over the planet and all that fun stuff. So thank you for for mentioning that. Yeah. It's, it's oh, yeah. cool, actually, like um, because, yeah, like, uh you know, we, I was like interested in your work because of like the podcast and because of like the political stuff that you do, but then finding out that you're like a punk and that you're like in this band and that we like watched some of the videos. Um, and I was like, yo, what the fuck? Yeah, but really, um, <laughs> really crazy. So I love the crossover because like, we definitely have roots in punk. So it's like cool to see people doing punk, but also doing like really important political commentary. Yeah. Very cool. Um, so Jason, tell us a little bit about yourself for our listeners who haven't heard of you. Oof. I mean, there's not much to tell. Um, <laughs> it really isn't. I'm a 46-year-old uh, Black dude from uh, the San Francisco Bay Area. I was born in Oakland. I grew up in a, a city called Richmond, California. Um, that definitely shapes a lot of my my politics, actually, where I grew up. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm kind of extremely thankful for the political environment that I grew up in in the East Bay. Um, I'm not going to say that my parents were activists. They were not, are not still alive. Um, but just, you know, the people around me growing up outside of Berkeley, kind of the scenes at the time that were converging on people my age. Um, like my, it wasn't my first job because I was working in high school, but after I graduated high school, I worked in a bookstore in Berkeley with the the drummer of AFI and one of the guys in hieroglyphics. So it's like, you know, when you have those two things converging constantly at the same time, those two scenes, it definitely influences the way you see the world. So, yeah, that makes sense. I, I, I um, love, I love the fact that I grew up in the Bay area. Hmm. Totally. Um, really cool spot. It seems like a lot of, uh, a lot of cool shit is always coming out of there too. Um, mm-hmm. Yo, so you are the co-host of This Is Revolution. Um, what's the vibe of your podcast? Uh, what are you guys trying to do with it? You know, I started it. Um, so I was in a band with my ex. So it is very adorable to see you two on the screen because it reminds me <laughs> of that that vibe. Um, <laughs> and and we were called La Fin Absolute du Monde, the absolute of the world. Mm. Uh, and we lived in this gnarly warehouse in West Oakland, California. So if you're familiar with the movie called Sorry to Bother You by Boots Riley, a lot of the sets were built out there. Mm. Okay. Tons of music videos um, were shot there. And all of my favorite bands 
um, rehearsed and recorded there, Faith No More, Exodus, Testament, Too Short. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like all these people were, were always were always there. So we had got back from a tour. My band Bitter Lake had got back from a tour in 2019. And I had been wanting to do this so much, even when I was in La Fin. And uh, I was like, let's just do a podcast. Dude. We, we, we live here. Well, I, at the time, it was just me. We live here and rehearse here. We know all the people. Let's just interview people. That'd be great. Mm. They're like, that's stupid. Nobody's going to care about what we have to say about anything. And uh, I just started doing it. Sometimes a band would join me. And then it just became me. And then um, a friend of mine, the show actually had a different name. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was named after the studio in which I did it in. So I think the first 20 or so episodes are called like sound waves. And a good friend of mine from the scene in the Bay Area um, who is a legitimate uh, content producer sounds kind of like a, a modern name, but he actually mm-hmm. made commercials for decades like that's what he did so he actually made content for people he goes jason there's a lyric in one of your songs where you say this is not a war this is revolution and i think you should call the show this is revolution because you don't Mm. talk about music you more talk about your feelings on the world so i will change the name of your show and let's create some imagery for it that i think makes sense and then um through interviewing cedric johnson who you guys Mm. just interviewed anyone listening right now please go back and when you're done with this listen to that interview he connected me with Toure Reed who connected me with my co-host Pascal Robert and, and the rest is kind of history wow amazing um it's cool like finding out that all these people like everybody knows everybody you know yeah, um, yeah. a great little family yeah uh, so you recently wrote an article that was published in Damage magazine called The Man Who Sold the World. Mm-hmm. And you're talking about Ibram X. Kendi. And in it, you talk about BLM and like the stuff that was going on with BLM and the Bernie Sanders campaign. Um, mm-hmm. Can you just talk a little bit about that, about your critiques of the BLM kind of like interjection on the Sanders campaign? Oh, hell yeah. Um, so we're... I just uploaded episode 525 of This Is Revolution. And that Whoa. doesn't count all the side shows and that doesn't count all the extra we do. So we're, we're almost at 700 episodes that I've done in, in almost four years. In four years. That's, that's insane. Awesome. You put us right? to shame. Absolute shame. It's, it's just it's a different kind of look. From the music <laughs> world, it was like, if you want to do this, do it with passion. And you yeah. do it. I, was, I used to work in the Gulf of Mexico and I was just overwhelmed one day and I cooked. I cooked for the most angry Southerners you can imagine. And I remember I was just overwhelmed. Because I was the only person in California. So he's called me all kinds of names I will not say on this show. <laughs> as you can imagine. And the head chef grabbed me. He's like, what the fuck are you doing? And I was like, I'm just trying to get it done. I'm, just, I'm trying. He's like, hey. He was like, fuck these people. Whatever you do, God damn it, you do it with passion. And, and he... And he <laughs> And he moved me out the way and he grabbed the spatula out of my hand. He goes, you flip this punk ass egg with passion. You flip the egg over. Do it with passion. So that's kind of the way I approach the world, right? Fuck yeah. So if I'm going to do a show, motherfucker, I'm going to do a show. <laughs> and I'm going to do all the shows. So um, so early on, I used to do a show with a friend of mine that's a comedian who's on tour right now with Dave Chappelle. And he used to bring comedians over to the studio and they would just talk shit. 
and he would want me there to like run the board. And one day, one of the comedians was going off about Bernie Sanders being just another white man. And this was right after the BLM thing. Mm-hmm. And she was like, and you can listen to the show. It's, it's, it's on air. Someone brought it up to me the other day. They're like, yeah, you've kind of been on this for a while. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and they said, um, Bernie Sanders doesn't have a black agenda. He ain't about mm-hmm. reparations. And I was like, well, what do you, what do you want out of reparations? And they were like, free college. I was like, it's kind of what he's about. (laughs) (laughs) What do you want out of reparations? Healthcare. Okay, that's kind of what he's about. What do you want out of reparations? I mean, I don't want just money. We need like housing. I was like, that's kind of what he's about. Mm. So what do you want out of your black agenda? And this is before I even read Mm. Preston Smith's, you know, really, that's another person you have a book about housing where he talks about the failures of racial democracy that we got with the great society over social democracy. And that BLM campaign kind of felt like a hit by the Democratic Party Mm -hmm. because Bernie Sanders does come out of activism in Mm -hmm. the 60s. So it felt like his first instinct was, I just let him have the floor. That's just, just let him have the floor. I'm not going to fight this. Mm -hmm. Um, And the first thing they started talking about is, you know, racist police violence. And I was like, yeah, I guess, but that doesn't affect everybody the same way. Mm -hmm. I'm a broke ass dude with expired tags. I'm being hella honest right now. And I'm not saying that to brag. <laughs> That's the truth. I can do one of two things. I got a live event going on right now in, in the Bay Area for the book launch. Mm-hmm. And I need to pay for a porta potty. Mm-hmm. Or I can pay for my tags. <laughs> I'm gonna pay for the porta potty and I'm gonna cross my fingers on the tags. Now I bring that up because if I get pulled over. Mm-hmm. I don't have family I can call A, to bail me out if I get arrested B, to get my car out of impound if I get towed C, to help me with a ticket I got insurance they can't give me the double whammy mm-hmm. but if they want to fuck with somebody mm-hmm. oh, I'm going to get fucked with mm-hmm. so there's this idea that and I got an old raggedy ass car <laughs> Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) so you know like all the things that 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 would get somebody fucked with by the cops i embody that Mm. right so so i understand those interactions but i also understand how those interactions have faced a lot of people that's broke as fuck or as hell Mm -hmm. with expired tags and raggedy ass cars and maybe they don't have insurance. And then them interactions with police are horrible because maybe you got a warrant from the last time you got pulled yeah. over and you didn't have tags and you didn't have insurance. And I've been, I, I drove around for years with no license because I couldn't afford to get it reinstated because I had to handle, you know, an old ass ticket. Mm-hmm. And I, I hate to sound this honest on air, but there was a way that I, felt like the people were co-opting a conversation that really wasn't affecting them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They may have had statistics 
And I'm like, have you even been anywhere outside of a major metropolitan area mm-hmm. and seen what the rest of the world looks like? Because I toured so much and I played weird, heavy music, mm-hmm. you know, I was always in these fucked up parts of America and nobody looked <laughs> like me, but everybody had the same problems as me. Mm-hmm. We were sitting around having the exact same conversations. So the Sanders campaign for a lot of people that are maybe my age and, and have been on the quote unquote left, right? Maybe even they were said they were socialist publicly before was was in vogue. Mm. Bernie Sanders represented for the first time hope that we can have, you know, real change in the highest position of the, of the land because everybody post Obama needed a new daddy. And what sadly ended up happening is hero worship. And that's a whole nother thing that I wrote. Mm-hmm. But, <laughs> but when BLM comes in and says, you don't have a black agenda for people that were on the outside that, that weren't hardcore lefts that didn't know who the hell Bernie Sanders was. Uh, yeah. It's just another old white man, you know, promising everything. Like, why do I give a shit about another old white man promised me everything? And they weren't even listening to like what these people were saying. Cause it's like, ultimately it's like, okay, well, what are you offering me? You're interrupting mm-hmm. this. What are you offering? And I didn't know what they were offering. Mm-hmm. And then if you look at, well, I'll, I'll shut up now. Cause we're probably going to get into 2020 at some point, but that for me was like this, this real pivotal moment where, as my co-host always says, if you don't understand quote unquote, black politics, Black politics will always be used to neutralize the left. Mm-hmm. You saw it in South Carolina in 2020, and you definitely saw it in uh, 2016 when, uh, excuse me, when Bernie Sanders is trying to uh, to speak twice. They did it to him twice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so here's like a quick follow up question to that. It's maybe a little bit hard to answer, but how much do you think that the establishment Democrats were? actively trying to use um blm or like as you put it like quote-unquote black politics to kneecap bernie sanders versus how much do you think it it kind of just was happening organically and then was being um uh cheered on by the democrats i do think it happened organically to be honest i don't think you know people sit in a room i don't mm. think the powers that be are as smart as some people want to believe they are or it's true right they're pretty fucking stupid, right? At one hand, everybody says how dumb they are. And the next hand, they're they're orchestrating every move of your life. It's one or the other, man. Um, I do think it's something organic. Mm. Um, I think when they saw that reaction, it was like, we, we got him. Mm-hmm. Right. Because Hillary Clinton starts talking about racism yeah. not long after that happens. And I quote that in the piece. Yeah, where she goes, you know, I could regulate the banks if they're really out of line, but is it going to yeah. stop sexism and racism? And when you read that, for me, it was a jaw dropping moment because I actually, to write this, I went through, so I was looking for that quote, I couldn't figure out where it was. So I read through two debates, the transcripts of two debates that Hillary and Bernie had. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of race reductionist rhetoric that she mm-hmm. had that Bernie almost had to backpedal on Mm. because his campaign was so class focused right and not race focused right that whenever the race question came up it almost felt like he was stuttering a little bit Mm. 
Um, and then, you know, 2020, you have, you know, people like uh, Brianna Joy Gray that becomes kind of like a, a mouthpiece for the campaign. Um, and she just gets obliterated on the Karen mm. Hunter show, which I found kind of offensive. Um, you know, I mildly know Brianna and I know she's not the person that would like slap the hell out of somebody. But at some point during that show, I probably would have been like, you got one more time to cut me off. And I was mm. fire. <laughs> but but you know she kind of used that same rhetoric of you know this old white man f him he doesn't understand these black problems mm-hmm. uh, yeah there's there's this like it's come up you know in i think our interviews with cedric and also with our interview with adolf reed probably with Ture as well but this idea of like what is black politics and who gets to use that phrase to like represent what they're saying? Hillary Clinton. Um, and you know, like, why is it that like Black Americans don't get to have internal political disagreement and debate? And mm. why is it that there's such a poor like literacy around being able to see that people are actually saying very different things? Um, and you can't just lump it all under the same the same thing. Um, mm. so I don't know if you have anything to say about that, but. I mean, I'm just going to echo the sentiments of Cedric and Ture that there's, you know, more black people than there are people in Canada. And this idea that we have a unified vision, um, this idea that, you know, any black cop that kills a black youth, it's internalized racism or Afro pessimism is kind of a fool's errand. Mm -hmm. Believe that there's not um, class contradictions within black America Mm -hmm. and has been for some time. I definitely challenge people to read uh, the book about freed uh, black people during the antebellum South. Mm. Oh God, I can't remember the name of it, but I believe that's the (laughs) colon freed black people in the antebellum South. Uh, Okay, We'll look it up and see if we can put it in the show notes. Yeah. It's Um, it's a a really good book. And I think it's important for people to understand that, um, you know, even the reparations argument, mm -hmm. It's tricky if you really want to go, well, hey, some of these people that are going to get it aren't going to look like you. And how many people do you think are descendants of free people? More mm. than you'd like to imagine. Mm-hmm. So is this really the argument that you want to have in 2023? Or do you want to talk about social democracy? Because you're also mm. talking about 11, 12% of the population asking for a multi-trillion dollar package that's only going to benefit them and no one else there's a reason why people like bob is it bob johnson is that his name the 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 multi-gajillionaire that paid everybody's college tuition uh, a few years back um who who um venture capitalist mm. of course he wants reparations he's like i want to handle that money Right. <laughs> and I'm going to talk about how you Negroes don't have financial literacy, so I can't handle money. So th- this idea that we all have the same problems. I was interviewed by somebody about a year ago. They came all the way down here to Mexico. We were talking and they had mentioned something about class reductionists mm-hmm. and it was about the reeds. And again, these are not just people I respect their work. These are also personal friends. Mm-hmm. I'm like, what the hell is a class reductionist? And they're like, well, you know, there's a there's a black identity. I was like, what the hell is a black identity? And they're like, well, you understood the beauty shop and da 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 da. I was like, you think Negroes are the only people that go to the beauty shop and talk shit? 
You think we can't walk into an Italian neighborhood and see a bunch of Italian women talking shit? Okay. It may not be the exact same words, but it's people talking shit in a beauty shop. I can go to a barbershop anywhere in America. It may not be the exact same conversations that we have in Richmond, California, or the south side of Chicago, but if I walk to uh, a barbershop in Montreal, in a, in a working class neighborhood, I'm going to see dudes in there talking shit. <laughs> Definitely totally. in French. So, um, so that idea that, oh, no, this is only ours. I'm like, mm, not the way you want it to be. Yeah. Or like, you know, there, I, I think there's like a perfectly good and, and um, credible case to be made for like a black American identity. But the thing is that it's just not monolithic because it's like an enormous group of people. Like mm-hmm. as we keep talking about, you know. Yeah. You know, black, yeah. I'm from the Bay Area. L.A. is like a whole different world. We talk mm-hmm. different. We do. We move differently. It's just sure. New York is a whole different world to me whenever I go there. So I can't just show up in, you know, St. Louis and know what to do. I mean, there's just certain behaviors you know how to do because you have respect. Mm-hmm. But as far mm-hmm. as like, oh, it's all the same. I'm like, nah, no, nah, it's not. Not even close. Yeah. So to talk a little bit more about Kendi, um, You know, when you were saying, like, what are these BLM activists who are shouting down Bernie Sanders? Like, what are they offering? Kind of like, you know, we got Bernie over here trying to offer, like, healthcare and, like, you know, college tuition and this kind of thing. But, like, what are the BLM activists who are claiming, like, the Black, like, having a Black agenda or a Black perspective on this? Like, what are they actually offering? And I think that Kendi represents a lot of what that type of politics is offering. Um, And when it gets right down to it, it's a lot of, like, weird inner soul-searching like um that is like basically the politics is that the idea i guess is that white people need to just do a lot of reflection um and a lot of like inner soul searching and i'm wondering like if you see anything else there that like is being offered like maybe even to be generous to kind of like steel man the the kendy perspective and be like what is it that you think he is actually saying is going to be helpful in tackling racism um in america you know me and me and uh jean bajlan uh, were were working on this thing right when the kendi thing happened because jean is a as a professor and department head at missouri state and you know Catherine lou and i had talked about this quite a bit as well and these are people that work in academia and mm-hmm. these kind of identity fights in academia are a little different it's a little more serious because people's jobs are more at stake mm-hmm. stuff. that's why adolf talks about about this stuff too because he's also another person that's worked in academia for, for decades um and i was looking at it more the, from the perspective of and we and gene and i both agree that you have to be a bit of a true believer so i i didn't want to make him the focal point totally because i think this whole mind state exists be, beyond him Sure. And that's what me and like my good friend Norm Finkelstein kind of differ. Like he looks at Kendi as the ultimate bad guy where I'm like, mm, he's kind of a symptom. And if yeah. you focus too much on him and you get him out of the way, kind of like how Robin D'Angelo isn't as big as she once was. For sure. Uh, you're going to find someone else to fill those shoes, but we have to yeah. look at, okay, what was he talking about? First of all, he waves a hand at capitalism. 
And you guys okay. mentioned this on the Cedric show. Once again, please go back and listen to that show. Go go read his book after Black Lives Matter. Go read his book, The Panthers Can't Save Us Now. And if you're really interested about, you know, quote unquote black politics, please read from revolutionaries to race leaders. Um, he waves a hand at socialism, but he calls racism and capitalism the conjoined twins. Mm. Right. And you can't have one without the other. Right. And this is just my perspective. Jason Miles, dude from Richmond, regular <laughs> cat. I live in Mexico. And <laughs> the natives of Mexico, really freaking nice to me. Mexican Americans, especially ones that come from Southern California, a lot of this stuff is steeped in gang culture. We won't get into a whole conversation about it. They're a little racist. Sometimes they say things around me kind of offensive. Right? These people generally aren't my neighbors, just kind of when I'm downtown. Um, they feel more comfortable saying these things, first and foremost, because they don't have a history of quote unquote settler colonialism and enslavement. So good luck trying to make them feel bad. And I don't give a damn. They can't stop me from renting or buying land here. They aren't the law enforcement that doesn't mm. pull me over. They're not judges. They're not even voting or setting any legislation. They need my American buying dollar. Because it's 10 times, almost 20 times more than the natives of this area. So you can say mildly rude shit around me. Mm. I, it doesn't affect me. Sorry. I can, I can just not go to your place and watch you go out of business in a week. Mm -hmm. Right? That happens here a lot. So you're a colonialist, is what you're saying. <laughs> I'm such a gentrifier. <laughs> but but you no, know, these these are more like again, these are Mexican Americans that come down here. Again, the native people of this area are really, really nice. But um that probably did sound like a someone's gonna say he's a colonizer. Like, yeah, go fuck yourself. Yeah, it's the American uh, Empire, man. That's it. <laughs> I yeah. Well, <laughs> I got to, I get to deal with living in the shadow of empire. It is kind of shitty. You know, our water gets shut off randomly. But anyway, um, Kendi takes that mild racism that a lot of, you know, middle class black people may face, quote unquote, microaggressions. He literally has a chapter in the book and says, there are no microaggressions. And I kind of agree with that. Just people being assholes, right? Mm -hmm. And he doesn't say it like that. He has a whole chapter where he uses much larger words. And I don't know if you guys read mm -hmm. that book. No, uh, I didn't. You, you, you go for it you know it's overly simplistic solutions to complex problems but the big problem again he waves a hand and says it's capitalism but the big problem is racism and mm -hmm. once you fix what's in the hearts of racist people yeah then and only then can you attempt to handle these economic problems right and all problems stem from the hearts of people and he takes you on a journey that he goes on because the book starts he's like 
I embodied all these racist tropes because I, you know, took in all this racism that was just so prevailing at the time in the 80s and 90s. And through this spiritual journey, if you will, now I know my wayward ways. And the only way we can fix Black America is by fixing the racist structure of the country. And I'm like, hmm, that's interesting. Because here I am living in a place where people, again, they've said something like, that's, that's fucked up. But it's like, it's, it doesn't affect me. Yeah. It's, just, it's almost it, like the material conditions of your life and your ability to like actually say no to things and walk away from things because people don't have material power over you is like the determining factor in that situation. And, and Kindy's book comes out, I think, around the same time as Jane Foreman's Jr. Locking Up Our Own, which is an incredibly important book to read as an antidote for the new Jim Crow. Because the new Jim okay. Crow misses a lot. Right. But it was so important for so many people than the subsequent documentary that comes out after it, 13th. Right. And when you read James Foreman Jr.'s book, starts off, he's a, a defense attorney. He left working for one of the Supreme Court judges. He was clerking for a Supreme Court judge. He was on his way up. His dad is James Foreman Sr. of SNCC, right? He comes from activism. He does what a good activist son does. I'm going to go work for the, the, the poor, the working class. I'm going to go be a public defender in D.C., Chocolate City. And what does he find? Everybody in this courtroom is black. The judge, his client, the DA, the bailiff, the arresting officer. Mm. so is it racism as kendy points it mm. at this point right and then he goes back into the history of black people fighting to have black cops because mm. they felt at the time if we have cops that look like us they'll know the good ones from the bad ones and they'll stop mm. us on the overall basis and that didn't happen because we didn't know what it would look like if we didn't have a strong left to try to redefine what policing looked like. Mm. We just threw these guys into the fire and they just become part of a different kind of gang. Mm. Right? How many black officers have been involved in the killing of unarmed black kids? Freddie Gray, Baltimore. These guys were black. Yeah. Is that all internalized racism? Or is this a class struggle? Is this them protecting property relations? Are we putting these people in a situation where maybe they got into policing because they did want to do the right thing? I grew up in the 80s and 90s in a place that was super violent. Mm -hmm. I've been shot at. I've had guns pointed at me. It's not fun. I remember when the calls for collectively, even on the quote unquote black left, mm -hmm. where we need more cops. You people don't come when we call. What was Public Enemy's big hit in 1990? 911 is a joke. Mm. Because when stuff went down and you call the police, they wouldn't show up. Right. So 
we have kind of this one way to look at things and BLM doubled down on that, which is policing is bad. Yes. <laughs> yes. Again, as someone that will have to deal with the brunt of that, that lived in those neighborhoods. Yes. And, and every city is different. Mm-hmm. LA's police, horrible. New York, horrible. Right? Um, but to say that once we fix them, then all the other problems will go away. Right. It was a it was a one solution. It was a one solution thing. And granted, they definitely did, t- you know, talk about, you know, other prevailing factors um, as far as poverty. And, and then I know you guys talked about like quality of life crimes and 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 uh, and all that good stuff. But, uh, you know. There were moments. Where people were fighting to do things like legalize marijuana in the 70s. Mm-hmm. The Nixon, the Nixon uh, presidency did a study, and that study came back and said marijuana is not addictive. Right. And there was a politician, uh, I think he was a city council member, was a white guy in, in D.C., and Foreman talks about this in his book. And the guy was like, <clears throat> hey, check this out, fellas. If we legalize pot, all these young black men that's going to jail for 10, 20 years, on these BS nonviolent drug crimes, we can give them a ticket, generate some some revenue for the city, and we won't have to worry about locking up these kids or ruining their lives. Mm. The pushback was from black nationalists, ex Panthers. They were like, "This is just the white man's way to get us hooked on heroin because weed is a gateway drug." Oh, I didn't know that. And if you let them smoke pot, it's a it's a pathway to heroin. Heroin was effing up the black community. Mm-hmm. But again, if we look at it as the drug is the magic, and we don't look at it as well, a lot of it is getting pumped into these cities. First of all, somewhat cheaply. Second of all, you're dealing with a population that's finally got an entryway into union working class jobs, and all these jobs are going overseas. Mm-hmm. For sure. Or in different parts of the country where they no longer live. They're leaving the, the urban core. So we have to understand where this blight comes from. It's not as simple as the magic drug. Like I hate, you know, conversations sure. crack cocaine that are just as simple as, well, crack arrived on the scene and um the CIA put it there. And it's like, okay, well. The U.S. government is allowing the free flow of of cocaine, which is making it extremely inexpensive in neighborhoods where people don't really have money to buy an eight ball. But you know what? You figure out you can take a kilo of cocaine, you can you can cut it and rock it up, and that kilo that might have cost you three or four, maybe five thousand dollars, now you've turned it into fifty thousand. You already have a built-in distribution system through street gangs, mm-hmm. and and you're saying. <clears throat> an apartment complex or a a HUD house in the hood where these open air drug markets aren't really policed that much is worth a million dollars a week or a month. You're going to have violence. You're going to have big time recruitment. It's like anything else. Mm -hmm. Understanding that dynamic 
takes away from these people are just evil inherently. It's because they don't have their dad. It's the music they listen to. You know, no, it's Bill Clinton. It's the economy, stupid. Yeah, no, there's like an obvious economic motivation. Um, I'm going to push back slightly on sure. something you've been saying, just because I'm I'm interested to hear what you would say. Um, so, you know, we've been talking about how the kind of like DEI, social justice world that Ibram Kendi sort of like presides over um, mm-hmm. is is really interested in constantly sort of like purging inner demons and stuff, right? Um, <laughs> and not very focused on policy, right? Um, but you talk in the article about how Ibram Kendi has this proposal for like a department of anti-racism, right? Which would exercise broad powers, like at every level of government to sort of like make sure that any new legislation that comes out, um, is, uh, um, sufficiently anti-racist in its outcome. Right. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's an interesting idea, at least, um, it's, uh, I've never, you know, heard of an, of, of something like that. Um, in any other country. Um, and it is a policy proposal, you know, whether or not we think it's realistic, it is a policy proposal. Um, and I wonder what you think of that. Like, would you think it would be a useful policy? Like, why? Why not? Well, Ibrahim Xkindi, after he said that, he spoke somewhere publicly and said, all policy is racist in nature. Of right? course, yes. <laughs> so that means sidewalk height. Right. It's racist in nature. Sidewalk, a curb height. So the height of the curb is racist in nature, right? They're trying to keep these big-footed Negroes from being able to step properly. Like, the idea that every policy is racist in nature and not trying to tackle real racist policies, I think it's a problem. And I think we don't have a lot of oversight in the United States over truly racist organizations. Like, let's take the Bureau of Indian Affairs, for example. Mm. Uh, there's a movie that's very popular called killers of the flower moon am i saying it flower killers of the blood moon i'm probably saying it wrong and i apologize but it's about the osage indians and the tragedy that happened with them right the only indian tribe in the united states that hit oil mm. they had barren land i'll be real brief they had barren land they got relocated from the east coast to kansas then they were able to sell their land in kansas um, and actually buy the land that they got sent to in Oklahoma. But the land was so horrible, they couldn't grow anything on it. And as they're trying to set it up for cattle ranching, and thousands died in this barren land, they hit oil. Mm. They're able to lease those oil rights. The U.S. government comes in, like, you Indians are way too rich and too stupid to handle your own stuff. And we're going to give you wards, guardians, that are going to come in and handle the money for you because you guys just aren't mentally equipped to do it. Eugenics is a popular science at the time. Mm-hmm. W.E. Boyce is a eugenicist at this point in time. I am not justifying this behavior. I'm pointing it out because we have mm-hmm. to understand the importance of eugenics in this era. This is like 1907. Yeah. Um, and so these guardians realized because what the what the osage did was everyone um in the tribe that was left got a portion yearly of the money which was the equivalent of hundreds of thousands of dollars so what these guardians ended up doing is just killing native americans 
which was not illegal at this time. Um, we don't know the full number that they killed. Like they married him and killed him, killed whole family so they can inherit the money. And that's where the movie stops. But the tragedy of the Osage has persisted for the next hundred years. The Koch brothers then come in because there's not much oil left, just running stripper wells. The Koch brothers then come in and start skimming oil. They're saying, okay, we're going to take 20 barrels of oil a day from you guys. And this is how much we're going to give you. That's the agreement that they make. But the Koch brothers come at night and end up taking 40 barrels of oil. They literally build their massive, what we should call a war chest, on destroying this land environmentally and stealing from these people. The native tribes, these people graduated from Stanford, the woman that wrote the book, Killers of the Flower Moon, went to Oxford. Um, an Osage Indian was the vice president of the United States. Our first prima ballerina of the United States is an Osage Indian. They're still deemed incompetent a hundred years later. These laws are still in place. Deb Holland, a Native American woman, now runs the Bureau of Indian, or she runs the interior that handles the Bureau of Indian Affairs. She's still trying to rip through all the, the racist framework from a, a literally 200-year-old uh, uh, department in the United States. I mean, you're making a pretty good case for a Department of Anti-Racism. <laughs> would Kindy's Department of Anti-Racism mm -hmm. look at the Osage, which isn't that many people? Mm -hmm. Or is Kindy's Department of Anti-Racism just literally, if you, I mean, again, when you read through it, what they want to do is like look at every new law and, and point out the racist flaw and that's your job. Right. Uh, I, get, I get what you're trying to say, but would you have felt that way in 1994? Can you see 1994 happening before it happens? I don't know. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, do you want every policy prescription held up because um, possible racism? Yeah. And it's also like, how are these terms being defined? And like, there's big disagreements on what is actually defined as racism, especially in like our post 2020, like, you know, uh, race reductionist era. And I don't, I don't remember the name of that document, Jay, but it was like the Canadian government like referenced it on their website. And it was like this white, white supremacy culture, white supremacy culture. So the white supremacy culture document, you know, lists things like being on time, Reading. Yeah, reading. Yeah, yeah. Like whatever, just like basic like that's shit. Your, that, that, that's a Canadian, that's where that's from. No, no it's not no. Canadian, but like the Canadian government like um, used it on their website. Like actually used it as a source about like on their website. So like there's this way in which this type of understanding of white supremacy and anti-racism has become extremely like hegemonic and mainstream. And people like reference that. And obviously there's you know a very strong and compelling case to be made that that document itself is extremely racist because it is implying that what is it what is it saying like it's saying <laughs> it's that like like, like yeah. racialized people what can't like be on time or like have difficulty like engaging with like i don't know reading like Following simple instructions at word yeah or... so obviously this is this is questionable um 
And yet it's, uh, it's like a lot of people are understanding that now as like an understanding of anti-racism. Right. So I think, yeah, totally. And I mean, it also like what I thought when I was reading that article and reading about the department of anti-racism was that, um, without an understanding of class and how it operates, what you end up with, you know, as usual, is that the people who are staffing the Department of Anti-Racism are members of the ruling class, right? Mm-hmm. And so the ways that they're going to engage with the new legislation is going to be in a way that reflects their class position, right? Why wouldn't it be? Um, and so they would very easily be able to say, well, this legislation looks good because it's going to benefit like, um, you know, members of the ruling class who happen to be people of color, right, or whatever. Um, whereas this legislation doesn't look so good because, you know, whatever, let's say they want to uh, give free college tuition to every American or something, they can easily say, well, oh, but, uh, you know, that would give, I guess that would give white people like an unfair advantage or something, um, you know, so it's like, it would be almost certainly used to prop up existing capitalist relations, like as almost everything is in, and that's, yeah. in, in a capitalist system, right? Yeah. And, and I think that's where Kendi comes from at the end of the day. Um, if and the reason why I brought up in my when I said, well, what would you have done in 1984? When you remember again, the the problem was crack, and crack was leading to violence in the 80s and 90s, right? That was that was the relation. No one wanted to see the economic relations and and look at the United States. We start dirty wars <laughs> over resources, right? We kill heads of state over hegemonic power. Mm-hmm. Why aren't the people that are watching the news doing the same thing? They don't have the ability to go to the courts and hold people up in litigation. You're being able to operate with somewhat impunity in the 80s and 90s. So if you're like, look, so-and-so has a block that's worth a million dollars a week, and they don't have the amount of soldiers that are equipped that you know like we're equipped we need to take over that block it's right. worth another million dollars a week right mm. that's where this stuff that's where this violence was coming from mm. but our solution to this was just lock people up ishmael reed famous black leftist is quoted as saying i don't care if he's 13 years old, if he's selling crack, lock him up for the rest of his life. Wow. That was the rhetoric. Not everybody, but a lot of people, because people felt like cats weren't sitting down long enough in prison. Hmm. What happened in we locked up so many people. This is why I hate when people go back to the 90s. They go, well... Crime numbers are not what they were in the... Yeah, exactly. You know why? Because everybody got locked up. So if you go look at like 1996, we'd already started building new prisons and locking them up. It got so bad that in California, I'm sure you guys saw images of people running through stores during the shelter in place here in the United States, especially in cities like San Francisco and Los Angeles, and, and stealing a whole bunch of merchandise, just carts full of merchandise. Because the grand theft got changed, right, on how much you're going to, to uh, which is going to be called grand theft, and it's going to be a, a felony. A lot of that had to do with the fact that so many people were in prison, and the prison system couldn't handle them, that people were dying a 
like waiting to see a doctor. People were dying in holding cells. And the California state legislation was like, look, we got to change some of this terminology because we locked everybody up for BS. Hmm. And they just started letting people out. There's this city that I live in is filled with people that committed capital offenses that got out and then got deported. Again, that's a whole nother show. The, <laughs> the, double, the, the, the double price you have to pay. Mm. Um, as you young people will say, thanks, Obama, right? Mm. Um, so the idea of what he throws out kind of makes sense when we don't understand all the working parts of government, how many departments get put in during a certain administration and then get blown up for the next, you know, what really stays. The fact that the Bureau of Indian Affairs has stayed for as long as it has, and I, I interviewed Greg Palace yesterday for a show that's going to air in a few weeks on my channel, and he's doing a documentary about the post-100 years, excuse me, uh, of the Osage Indians with the DiCaprio family and, and with, the Scors with Martin Scorsese. and. Um, I asked him point blank. I was like, should we get rid of the Bureau of Indian Affairs? And he's like, no, because you need it. It's kind of important, you know, who these are little bitty sovereign nations within your country. You need some department to deal with them. Yeah. Is it going to be dealt with fairly? I mean, that's up to the people that are appointing these heads of these departments. Um, how seriously do we look at these departments? How many people that have worked for oil companies have worked as the head of the mm. interior that didn't care about pipelines on native land, right? Yeah, yeah, for so sure. Our yeah. understanding of the inner workings of politics is so minuscule. It reminds me of, um, I mean, in Canada, there's like the, the Indian Act, which is like the piece of legislation that, yeah, legislates the existence of indigenous people in the country. Um, or First Nations people in the country anyway. And, uh, you know, it's, it, it, its content is, like, um, really objectionable <laughs> in so many ways. You know, there's, like, a lot of, like, racist language just, like, written right into it. Um, but we can't really get rid of it because it also is the basis by which, like, you know, a million people have, like, any sort of, like, legal status. Um, mm. So it's, like, very complicated. And, like, you know, many, if not, I would say, like, most Indigenous people, like, don't want it to get rid of it because it's, it's yeah, it's where their status comes from, you know. So it's, like, this very complicated thing that's kind of like baked into the legislative ecosystem. Um, yeah. yeah, I don't know. Just on the on the topic of, like, the Department of Anti-Racism, like, I... I, I do think that it would be interesting, like when we're imagining what a future socialist North America might look like, having a kind of like ombudsman of solidarity uh, who could like look over like new legislation to sort of like um, see how it might impact, you know, various um, mm. minority ethnicities or what have you does sound like a very good idea, you know, and it's something that, you know, um, probably, you know, the Soviet Union, for example, maybe could have used, <laughs> right? Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, like in, in the absence of, of anything even resembling social democracy, let alone socialism, like such a thing is just kind of like, um, mm. it's just, it's just tilting at windmills. And it reminds me a lot of the idea that we could sort of abolish the police tomorrow in like a capitalist 
society because like i mean i've said this in the pod like a million times but what happens if you abolish the police tomorrow you just get private police right we live under capitalism do you think that capitalists are just going to not have like enforcement of property relations of course they fucking will right um and which is you know and that's why like i'm just constantly sort of like guys it's like first steps first you know Mm. (laughs) we need to build up something resembling like a an equitable society before we can even really start like moving in that direction like one of the things, sorry, go ahead. No, 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 you go ahead. I'm sorry. Uh, okay. Um, one of the things that's just making me think about here, because, you know, th- like when people are being like, look, we need fucking healthcare. We need like people need their basic needs met. We got to do that. That's actually what is going to uplift the majority of racialized people in the United States. Um, And so, but then those people get called class reductionists, right? Mm-hmm. And I think like, you know, to be like, to be fair to the critics of that kind of thing, I think, like, one of the things we try to talk about on this podcast is that, like, of course, like, the the economic situation of the vast majority of people is the, is the center of their suffering. Like, people not having what they need to just basically live, not being able to pay their rent, having to do, like, you know, like we we're talking about with Cedric, having to do these, like, like criminalized types of, of employment just to make ends meet, then being targeted by the police for that, so on and so forth. But at the same time, like there is stuff that is not necessarily subsumed under that, like specifically. And like one of the things that's just coming to mind is the episode that we did on um, like Black American English or AAVE. And like, because basically we were like, look, it is true that people who speak Black American English as their as as their first dialect, when they speak, they are treated by like a larger society as speaking in an incorrect way, even when they're speaking with like perfect internal grammar. Um, and they are going to have like discrimination based on that. Like you could be, you could be um, not hired because you go in. So that's where like code switching comes from. You have to be able to talk both like in the dialect and not in the dialect, but people who speak like the standard American dialect don't have to code switch into black American English. And in fact, if they do code switch into black American English, they're called like, they're called out for cultural appropriation. So. I guess that's kind of an aside, but we did a whole episode on that. But it's like, could like language protections for um, Americans whose first dialect is Black American English be something along with the economic policies that could potentially like protect uh, Black Americans from discrimination? I would, I always push back on that whole thing because it's like, first of all, everybody talks differently no matter where you go. And I've been around way more because i worked in the south in the gulf of mexico way more white people i can't understand than black people i can't understand but i've been around my share of black people i can't understand and the other day i shared a video with jay i had no idea you guys did a show on that where there was there's a toronto slang Toronto man. i don't understand there's a young lady that is very popular on the internets and i don't understand anything what a ute is and why a ute needs to get smoked don't smoke any utes <laughs> I'm like, are you Inuit? I don't understand what you're trying to say. That being said, <laughs> if your grammar is that bad in the first place, what jobs are you really applying for? And no, I think, but, if but, you but listen, let's be honest. Okay. Let's be honest for a second. If somebody's talking like they just fell out of a 70s black exploitation flick or a rap album, where again, these putting putting it on for the album if you're from the south and you want to work in the south everybody talks like you sorry hate to break it to you guys go to the south 
You've toured, Jay. You toured the states, right? Yeah, we did. We went to the. I'm south, sure. Yeah. I'm sure you went to the south, and you were like, "What did that man just say?" <laughs> they didn't look like me. You think he has a heart? Do you think it's all? If your grammar is that bad, you're probably applying for certain types of jobs, and you are a, of a certain class of individual because it does boil down to education at a certain point. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, so I'm gonna just white explain AAVE to you for a second. Oh God. Um, I've had it black. <laughs> I know exactly what it is. I just don't dig it. I don't dig the concept. I think it's not. You, my co-host is from New York. Mm-hmm. You're going to tell me that there's a. Then you go, oh well, it's the diet. It's the A A V V E of New York. It's like okay, it's it's everything and nothing, right? No, no, we like. I definitely agree. It's not. It is not like the. It is not the way that Black people speak. Like talking about it that way is incorrect because it's like obviously people speak differently. And like you were just saying about Toronto man, like to say that people who are in Toronto are speaking in AAV is incorrect. And there's tons of people in the United States who actually are not Black who who speak in what is described as AAV. But there's just like it has internal grammatical rules. This is the only thing. Like it, there are specific internal grammatical rules that like you can speak it correctly or incorrectly, which is technically what makes it a dialect. Which is and weird, as you're pointing but- out, and as you're pointing out, like the people who tend to speak it as their first dialect, right? Um are, tend to be um from a particular socioeconomic class, right? Um and so one way to look at it is that it's 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 a subjugated dialect in the United oh. States of America that could use legal protection, you know. Um, but anyways, now we're on. Like anyway, that's our that's tangent. our spicy t- yeah, hot take. I, I, would, <laughs> I would love. I would love. Uh, yeah, I, would, I man, I wish I could just take you guys to like West Virginia. <laughs> I mean, we've been like, to West Virginia. Yeah, we, we were <laughs> yeah. in West Virginia. Yeah, you so go ahead and tell them about AAVE. They'll be like, if you don't get the fuck out of my face with that shit, none of us can talk right. We're white as shit. <laughs> We're no, for sure, though. It's for we're sure. Generations it's not. of motherfuckers that can't talk right, you know. <laughs> so if you want to have protections for broke motherfuckers that can't talk right, that we makes do. more sense to me. <laughs> kind of. Yeah, man. And then because you know who doesn't care about that? Amazon. And they're usually the, the biggest employer in these areas and they pay the most money. Why couldn't they get uh, a union started in Alabama? Cats was making more money working for Amazon than anywhere else in town. Mm-hmm. So do you think Amazon gives a fuck about AAVE? Or do you think academia gives a fuck about mm-hmm. AAVE? Come well, on. Realistically, you gotta, you gotta probably, probably like in the Amazon boardroom where they actually make any fucking decisions, um, no one who speaks AAVE as their like native dialect and and struggles and struggles to mm-hmm. speak like standard American English as yeah. as a native dialect who for example might make basic grammatical errors or stuff because it's not their native dialect yeah right um would probably be very unwelcome in that boardroom you know why would they be in a goddamn boardroom in the first place how are you getting in the boardroom you well, don't that's the thing job that's the thing yeah if do you want someone that can't read or write at a certain level in the boardroom in the first place i would rather have somebody that's able to read or write at a certain level i just i would just love you to have that level of education whenever we look at like struggles socialist struggles throughout the world even governments that didn't pan out that well they generally always start with educating their populace right because that's what happens algeria somaliland south africa uh zimbabwe 
you know, these colonizers left us with all these uneducated people. We have to build schools. Venezuela, Cuba. So he's not going to be in the boardroom in the first place. And if you don't understand, you know, the basic structures of engineering, if you're going to be in charge of uh, laying out the new city plan in socialist utopia, I, I mean, I kind of need you to understand these, these basic functions. So I think we miss that when we're just trying to correct people's grammar. Like one of the first lessons I learned in traveling um, and coming to Mexico, because I didn't come to this part of Mexico, I actually came to a place called Juarez. And it was when Juarez was like hot. It was like the murder capital of the world. And I remember once we were with one of the bands from there and he was like, you understand what I'm saying, right? But sometimes I say the words wrong. It's like, yeah, he goes, and you never correct me. It's like, no, because I get what you're saying is exactly. That's what communication is. You know how people use the wrong your on social mm-hmm. media? And there's always that one asshole that wants to correct. Right. It's like, but you understood what they were trying to say. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't, I, because I've been around and I've been around different accents, I don't, maybe that's why the AAVAE thing kind of hits me a certain way because I had to work in places where it was hard to communicate with people that were from different regions of the South. Mm-hmm. I was in the region with with a black dude that was from like the swamps. He had a hard time understanding me. I had a hard time understanding him. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't say that there was an AAVE scholar that was going to descend from the heavens that was going to write, you know, uh, uh, well, this is what he's really trying to say. You know, just had to listen. Mm, and and I, sure. I, I understood. But above and beyond all that, I also worked with a lot of cats that couldn't read. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a problem. Yeah, of course. I'm from, again, I'm from California. A literacy, literacy is way different here than it is in, in certain parts of the South. Yeah. So you definitely walk away going like, damn, we need an educated populace. Now, I don't, you don't need to talk like, you know, Thurgood Marshall. But I just need you to be able to understand, you know, what, what people are saying to you. For sure. sure. Yeah, I definitely took us on a, a tangent there, but uh we should talk more about it in uh in DM sometime, man. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> you should check out our episode on the topic though. Maybe, maybe we'll make a more compelling case in that episode. But um, so to switch gears a little bit, because we want to make sure we touch on this um in this episode, you know, you um are in a metal band. Um and it's called Bitter Lake, and it is described as the voice of the unheard masses against the neoliberal corporate oligarchy. Did I say that right? <laughs> sounds about right. That sounds, you know, I want to change that now. Now that you read that out loud, now I want to change it. But yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that oppressed the demos. Yeah. I was also like, whoa, what's the demos? So uh, we have this thing on this podcast where I do the, strate- <laughs> the strategical ditziness where I'm like, what does it mean? Um, and Jay was like the demos, you know, demos. demos. Yeah. People. Yeah. The people. I don't know what I'm talking about. Um, so anyway, um, do you want do you want to talk to us about music? Do I see why I don't want to talk about AAV? 
because I don't fucking know. I don't know how to pronounce like. You wanted me to words. say, yeah. but it's by my niggas. No, I'm just playing. I'm playing. Um, <laughs> what, what, what got you I, into heavy music? What's up with that? Oh, fuck, dude. Again, I'm from the Bay. What a great place to be when it comes to heavy music, especially in the 80s, right? Metallica is lived in my city. They lived in Richmond, California, right by the Burger King of Carlson. <laughs> Exodus is, is from my city. You know what I mean? The Dead Kennedys is from my city. So pff, how can you not be about it? So much dope stuff. Uh, came out of the Bay when I was growing up. Um, and it was like outsider culture when I was little. You know, I'm, I'm older than you guys, so you guys grew up with a very different Metallica. Like, people that listen to Metallica probably, you know, <laughs> messed with you or beat up. <laughs> and there were bullies, you know, when I was a kid. If you listen to that kind of music, you were bullied. You were, you were definitely an outcast. And uh, it just resonated with me uh, from the first time I saw like a, a PBS documentary on the Sex Pistols, um, I was just kind of all about aggressive music because I also grew up with parents that played like funk music. Okay, funk music is also very aggressive, in my opinion. It's very heavy. I think right. funk music is heavy music. Hell yeah! So yeah, just um, oh. and okay, so you're you're also like somewhat of a historian of punk, like <laughs> in your. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm gonna call you a historian of punk. Mm-hmm. Um, I love in your recent uh you you recently came out with this like mini book or like pamphlet yeah. Yeah, yeah. um called I Was a Teenage Anarchist. Yeah. Um and in it you go through the history of punk and you come to this conclusion that what Mark Fisher called capitalist realism um effectively ate punk rock. Um so that is to say, like the anti-establishment ethos of punk uh was successfully incorporated into the establishment itself. Mm. Um, and just turned into just another kind of consumer subculture. And mm. interestingly, you argue that a similar thing has happened or is happening to the left in general in North America. So how did anti-capitalism get incorporated into capitalism? <laughs> Marketing. Um, <laughs> think, think about this. Think about this. We all, everybody on this screen, everyone listening, to, or the, the, everyone talking on this screen right now, loves some form of aggressive music and we've created in our head who these people are that made this music we read all the interviews we read all the freaking bios about them and how anti this and that they were and i got to know a lot of these people and it made me think and ask this question what if they're less anti-everything and the anti-everything was kind of almost a cottage industry that was formed out of um, a, a barrier to get into the, to the mainstream. Everybody wanted to be famous, right? Everybody was pretending to be David Bowie. The germs, the runaways, they're you know, huge you're talking. You're talking about like early punk now. Early hardcore, early hardcore. And let's say early hardcore that you get out of the West Coast, right? Black Flag, The Germs, X, Fear. Um, These cats grow up with kind of big 70s rock that has gotten over bloated. And 
they're working from the outside because there's not really many places that are allowing them to do their thing. But does that necessarily mean that their whole agenda is an anti-capitalist one? Or is it just one of, I don't really have an entryway in to the mainstream? Mm -hmm. And then that just becomes popular because they are speaking to a disaffected youth, especially when we hit the the Reagan 80s, the Reagan-Thatcher 80s, I think are an extremely important time because it's a conservative time. And it's a time when the all the hippies become yuppies and we have tv shows that that might predate you guys um in the u.s like family ties that show the hippie parents as kind of the dumb idiots and the conservative reagan loving son as the smart guy because conservatism won and i love looking at flyers of that era because they're all anti-reagan And that music was such a middle finger to that moment because these guys know the factories are gone. We always talk about Detroit. Mm -hmm. You know what the number two car manufacturing city was? Los Angeles. Mm. All these things are gone now. Johnny can't go with barely a high school education and walk in the door and get a factory job like his dad. Maybe you can get into law enforcement, you know. So you got to go to school before Obama said, teach him how to code. That was kind of the, the word for everybody. Got to go to college. Got to go to college. And these were, nah, F that, F that. But what did it really have after F that? And punk music kind of lives in a couple different cultures, in my opinion. The culture of deconstruction, which is the culture of no. Mm-hmm. We don't want your thing, f your society, and the culture of authenticity. You're not real enough to be at our party. Mm-hmm. Right? You're a poser. I still call people posers, so I'm a victim of this culture myself. <laughs> so, <laughs> those two cultures work against each other mm-hmm. to really build any infrastructure into a mainstream where you can grow your movement if it's a real movement. All these people that were kept out of mainstream venues because the shows were too violent. Like, think about this for a second. I went and saw Bad Religion with a friend of mine, also an activist, um, in Oakland, California, a few weeks ago. Fun show. I never saw Bad Religion live. And... They were talking about the last time they were in Oakland and you know playing in the Bay Area back in the day because they're from Southern California, so the Bay Area for them was a six-hour drive, right? Um, there was a time when that band couldn't play in a corporate-owned venue mm-hmm. because the show was going to be too violent. Not anymore. Everything is corporate. The drinks in there are corporate. <laughs> the slave labor that makes the merchandise. You know, the sponsorship that gives them the free gear. Mm-hmm. No, they have no problems. The message, quote unquote, hasn't changed. They're still singing the same songs from, you know, the early 80s. But, but they have no problem going on the Warp Tour. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you guys know who owns vans. It ain't getting run out of a garage anymore. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so this idea 
that this music was so anti-anti. It, it was anti because it had to be. And that kind of became the marketing for it. So when you, by the time you get to stuff like Hot Topic, which actually starts as a record store, hmm. they're marketing rebellion. And that's mm-hmm. a problem for people like Kurt Cobain, because for me, Nirvana mm. is direct, and I'm not a Nirvana fan. They are direct descendant of that hardcore movement. If you don't have mm-hmm. bands like Flipper and Black Flag, you don't have Nirvana and the Melvins. And I'm talking mm-hmm. like the late era Black Flag, the, those last three Rollins albums where they slow stuff down. Um, that everybody hated. Um, and if you think about what Black Flag was trying to do sonically, again, culture of authenticity, people hated him for that. Why are you guys slowing down? This isn't punk. Oh, that's interesting. But Nirvana creates that Nevermind record, which is filled with singles. Do they know it's going to sell 11 million? No. I love that quote from Buzz where he goes, he hears the demos. He goes, man, this might sell 100,000 copies. That's how those guys thought at the time. Mm-hmm. Right? They didn't know they were going to you know, blow the F up, but they did want mainstream success to a certain degree. But it always worked against that, that kind of quote-unquote punk rock ethos where they were constantly like is this right i mean what's the first thing that happens after they kurt cobain kills himself chris novoselic joins flipper bands grew up loving uh uh dude from the germs plays in foo fighters can't think of his name off the top of my head guitar player so these guys roots are definitely hardcore but we don't call it that anymore we call it grunge Mm-hmm. And it sells better. It's important. Mm. The iconography of this music really lends itself to writers that were tired of trying to make Snoop Dogg sound important. And now they can talk about how great the 60s were. Excuse me. And the direct line of authenticity in the music that Nirvana has to 60s rock. Yeah. Reading, reading, I was a teenage anarchist was actually like quite depressing for me because of course I'm a, like, of course I am aware that I live in capitalist realism, but I feel like that drove it home for me in such a brutal way, you know, because like, I'm like 10 years younger than you. And so like, I was like a kid when Kurt Cobain killed himself. Mm-hmm. And so like, you know, that like, there's this way in which like grunge has like this element of quote realness or like a a belief that it was more real than like what came after it. Right. Because when I was growing up, it was like, you know, there was just like, it was the rise of this like pop, pop punk, pop everything. Um, But like, you know, Nirvana, like as, as you were explaining was already so, so capitalist realist in what it was. It was already the marketing and like the selling back to us of rebellion. And that obviously contributed to Kurt Cobain's suicide. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just like, I think for people our age and younger, we're just like, holy shit, everything has been bought and sold back to us since Ooh. from before we were born. You're giving like, me goosebumps, Clementine. You're giving me goosebumps. Um, I'm being totally serious. Look, can you see? Uh, um, <laughs> What 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 messes with my head, and I don't know how you guys feel about this, 
is people get mad at me when I start saying these things as if I'm ruining the fantasy. Mm. And I'm like, look, dude, I'm still going to listen to this music. I'm still going to blast my war and enjoy it. But I'm not going to sit here and act as if it's a movement in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, one one like capitalist realist sort of like thing. It's just a little side story that I kind of want to tell because listening to this. Like when I first was like, okay, I want to like print a t-shirt, you know, like mm-hmm. I want to figure out how to do that. I like asked around local people who were printing shirts, like what they did. And I just like followed what they did. And I kind of just assumed that like an anti-capitalist framework would be involved in what they were doing because we were all like leftists. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I followed the exact same thing. And then I got like my first little batch of shirts and I like looked at the tag and it said made in Bangladesh. Um, and I wanted to mention this right now because the Bangladeshi textile workers are currently doing massive strikes in Bangladesh. Oh, fuck yeah. Fuck um, yeah. yeah, like huge unprecedented levels of strikes are going on in Bangladesh right now. So, um, and of course they're having like a lot of police repression, but So when that happened in my naive state, like I was just like, just absolutely shook that it said made in Bangladesh on my little fucking shirt. So I, I like went into my fucking closet and pulled out my fucking a cab t-shirts and my fucking all my little punk screen printed shirts. And I took a look at the tags for the first time. And I was absolutely fucking like disturbed to find over and over again, made in Bangladesh. And the main, like, the main, like, cheap T-shirts that everybody prints on, um, they're all made in Bangladesh. And so, like, this is just crazy to me how we have this, like, it's like what you're saying, this aesthetic of, like, anti-authoritarianism. Like, yeah, fuck the establishment. Fuck the police. And then the shirt itself is being made by these people who are not even making, like, a living wage, who don't have a fucking fire escape at their place of employment, mm-hmm. like, who are just, like, living in abject poverty. And also, you know, all of the all of the jobs to do that kind of work are in Bangladesh because to have them here, you'd have to pay workers more. You'd have to have more workers' protection, more safety protections. And so, yeah, it's just crazy. And to me, I'm like, that's, like, capitalist realism. My fucking ACAB shirt with my fucking tag that says made in Bangladesh. that's that's where that stuff wins right because you Kurt Cobain passes away in 1994 the same year and it's all coincidental I'm not trying to make it sound like there's again people are pulling strings Green Day comes out with Tukey Mm. I'm not trying to shit on Green Day nice guys (laughs) Green Day I don't want to get you know I'm going back to the Bay next week. I don't want to get waxed by green. Day. Like, yeah, this is all I need is Billy Joe. And like, Hey, <laughs> so I don't want that smoke. Right. Um, <laughs> that record. Uh, <laughs> he made you guys picture that. I'll let little ass Billy Joe with a baseball bat. <laughs> <laughs> um, that, that record kind of uh, blows up this idea of this genre called pop punk, which is, mm-hmm. Um, we're going to not so much talk about problems in the society and, and you know, uh, repression at large. And we're going to talk more about fuck you, mom, which is why uh, mm-hmm. like Rage Against the Machine, who can have videos with literally shining path in their video, people not understand uh, that they are communists, right? Um, because it's mall friendly rock mm-hmm. music for a growing suburban population 
a lot of it in the states due to financial deregulation that is allowing people to leave the urban core and get bigger homes in suburbia. And it's an access to free credit. So around this time too, you'll meet people that are my age and slightly younger um, that say, you know, when I went to college, the day I walked on campus, I got a credit card. Again, a lot of this financial deregulation is leading to um, a lot of prosperity. So all the things that you're singing about in 1981, where's my future? I don't see it. That's gone. And now you got Blink-182, you know, all the, <laughs> all the, all the nasally bands and, and all that yeah. stuff kind of, kind of blows up through, through this certain level of, of, uh, of economic prosperity. And some people can say, well, maybe it lost its soul um, with this economic prosperity and people getting major label deals, punk bands, not having to tough it out in a van and not having to tough it out on a small indie label they can walk in the good charlotte you know walking in the door um with a major label deal it's like eh, i guess but you, you really think that the germs wouldn't have taken a deal with atlantic had they been offered one mm -hmm. in 1981 the music just wasn't profitable like it was when they learned how to to uh change the name these guys from Seattle came with a different visual aesthetic kind of by chance because of the conditions in which they lived in. It's colder there. So grunge to me is more of a, a fashion style than a sonic style because those bands don't sound alike. Nirvana doesn't mm. sound like Alice in Chains at all. Soundgarden doesn't sound like Alice in Chains or Nirvana or Tad or the Melvins. They all were really doing their own thing. They just happened to come out of the same region. And a lot of them were signed to the same small label. And like most labels do, we're just going to just snatch everybody up from this region that has a flannel shirt on and, and throw you out there and see if it sticks. <laughs> and, and for a lot of people, they got careers out of it, right? Soundgarden got a rest in peace. Chris Cornell got a great career. Allison Chains made some great records. Rest in peace, Lane Stanley. And Mike Starr, Jesus Christ, how many of these guys are passing away? Um, but but when when I look at that era and that music and, and where we are right now, you, you get a derivative; it gets watered down. And your derivative gets watered down. Your mm -hmm. derivative gets watered down. You just water down, water down. And now we're just kind of hanging on to the uh, Bangladeshi T-shirts with the anarchy symbol on it. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. pretty brutal. Like in your pamphlet or mini book, um, I was a teenage anarchist, you talk about how punk has kind of always had this um this streak in it that's basically like bourgeois youth mm -hmm. who are extremely like um alienated for like a bunch of different reasons and are um then expressing that through the medium of punk, right? And mm -hmm. then you kind of talk about how there's a um a bourgeoisification if you want to call it that mm -hmm. that that takes over where punk becomes more and more associated with like middle class um uh people and therefore kind of middle class ideology so a lot of the political stuff gets stripped away and then it turns into like skateboarding right um, <laughs> and you know which is what you know the 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 youth in the suburbs were doing right mm -hmm. um and so this is a really interesting phenomenon and like you and me have talked a bunch in dms about mm -hmm. the takeover of punk and heavy music music scenes by 
like neoliberal social justice style politics, right? Um, the PMCification mm. of mm. Uh, of of punk, and mm. um, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm I'm wondering what you think what is going on mm. there, um, and uh, also if you have any good stories for us about that. Ooh. You know, Jay, I'm so sad right now that I'm not sitting with with you two right now. This would be fun to be in the same house <laughs> laughing and high fiving and giving each other fist bumps at this moment right now. Um, <laughs> I do have stories that I, I'm not at liberty to tell because I think there's an overlapping <laughs> fan base. And if I was uh, to tell some of these, it would be hell for me. And you guys would probably face it a little bit more than me. But there is something about middle-class wokery mm. that is taking over heavy music. And ooh, I want to say some names. I'm just going to keep my mouth shut. There's some middle, because you can't really understand unless you say the names. But there is something about where I'm seeing a lot of the heavy stuff go, to your point about the neoliberification, that's very kindy friendly to the point where people mm. are recommending that book and, and Robin D'Angelo. And the same thing is happening in hip hop as well, right? Mm. Um, I get trying to get the quote racist out of the music because let's be honest. It's not a safe space for everybody. Clementine, you're a woman that mm -hmm. dare listen to heavy music. I yeah, I mean, I got my ass kicked at a at a hardcore show when I was a teenager, and I got my ass fucking kicked by dudes at like a uh, a hardcore show where they were doing the arm thing that they do oh there the shows. fucking karate shit. Not a fan. Yeah, a fan. yeah. But also too, it's like God forbid you wear a shirt of a band, and you got to get the quiz, right? <laughs> Oh, chick, ch cute chick wearing a shirt of a band. Good songs. Do you know? As a black dude, I get the same thing, right? Um, and it's not the conversation starter. For me, if you're wearing a shirt, if I see Jay, if I'm in Montreal and I see Jay, and he's wearing uh, a Godflesh shirt, I'm going to be like, oh, word, you did Godflesh? And he's going to be like, yeah. And we have a conversation. If I see you wearing the same shirt, I'd be like, word, you did Godflesh? We have a conversation. That's how I made my friends as a teenager. Mm -hmm. Going to Berkeley, California, and somebody's got the cool, oh, you listen to blah, 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 and you become friends. Mm -hmm. It's not a judging thing. It's just I'm trying to see if you're in the same shit that I'm into, and then we could go fucking hang out at a show and have a good, a, a good time. Um, in heavy spaces, we can't lie and say there's not, like, racism. There's not misogyny in these spaces. It definitely mm -hmm. exists. There's genres of music that are just black metal. <laughs> it's got a horrible yeah. reputation still to this day, right? Oi, horrible reputation still to this day of, of racist and misogynist in the, in the music. I get that to a certain extent, but people that are so far outside those mm -hmm. worlds condemning things that they don't really need to condemn, um, trying to silo themselves off. Part of why I dig heavy music was solidarity i'm going to go have my live event you know i don't know when this is going to air it's november 18th in the bay and older dudes are going to be there that were part of exodus machine head forbidden the death metal band death um and we're going to talk about music and back in the day and all that fun stuff they're all white guys and i wasn't cool for a black guy 
I'm just Jason from the band. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And that's the one thing I dig about scenes. You're not Clementine the chick. You're Clementine from the scene. You know what I mean? <laughs> so for me, I try to protect that. And I don't really dig siloed spaces because you can't, back to the whole culture of deconstruction mm. authenticity, you can't grow this out. If you think what you're saying is important, if you want to get this out to the masses, don't you want to have a mass audience? Or are you afraid of a mass audience because of that culture of authenticity? Now you're a sellout. And you want to keep it to this siloed group of individuals because you have a built-in marketplace. And that's what I found on the last tour I was on, that people were very happy preaching to their extremely small choir and siloing themselves off in anti-racism to the point where they weren't allowing anyone else in and, and calling it like a safe space. And I'm like, hey, man, Gilman Street in Berkeley is the epitome of safe space, in my opinion. And there's so many different types of people that go to a show there. I don't give a damn what you identify as, what color you are. You are welcome there because it's literally in the rules of the venue. Mm. Right? Mm. We should all be the Gilman. Right. And when you stop trying to be the Gilman and doing things like there's one venue, I won't say where. <laughs> they were like, we were in this city in your native Canada. I won't say where. Because <laughs> it gives up too much ass. Uh, and we're walking around. And we don't do the tour badge thing. Unless you have to. If you're on a big-ass tour where no one knows who you are and you're playing, like, the large theaters and shit like that, where your load-in is at 11 a.m., you might need a tour badge. Mm. If you're playing Joe's fucking hot dog hut on 3rd Street, bitch, just walk in there at 6. Yeah, of course, <laughs> yeah. When doors open, you're fine. So we're walking around, and this person goes, are you guys in a band? And we're like, Yeah. And they're like, oh, where are you guys playing? We tell them the venue they're playing. They're like, oh, that venue is so cool. They kick out white people if there's too many. I was like, why is that cool? Bitch, that's potential t-shirt sales. Why the fuck? (laughs) Why the fuck I want to play to less people? That's as good (laughs) as I've ever heard in my life. Oh, well, no, it's all about, and they're trying to explain it. And I was like, so you're telling me you got fired up to get kicked out of somewhere? They're like, yeah. I was like, man, you got the game so twisted. And we had to get a talking to. I told Jay this off air. And by we, I mean me. Had to get a talking to before we came. Like, oh, you can't say yada, yada, yada here. Because I'm like, man, you act like I'm over here asking for genocide. What do you? Y'all need to calm the fuck down. This is a rock show. In front of people that want to have fun. I'm finna go have fun with strangers. I'm gonna try to sell some of these punk ass t-shirts. 
these CDs that we burnt off this computer and wrote on because we were too broke to actually have decent <laughs> copies of shit, right? That's what I'm fist to do. And I'm fist to have a message of solidarity before I walk off this stage. So everybody in this place knows that if we want to do anything, we must do it together. Mm. I don't know what you motherfuckers is talking about. And how did that go over? Not well, brother. Not well. <laughs> I ended that tour. We we did another show in, in Montreal, which was great. And we came back, did the East Coast. I kept getting yelled at for a message of solidarity every night. Mm. You're going to make me tear up. And it ended with me. I'll say this. I'll tell this story. Oh, shit. I'll tell this story. This is on a main podcast, too. I'll be honest. I'm not going to say names. Okay. No, you don't have to. We played in Austin, Texas. At this little bitty spot in Austin. That shit was fun as fuck. Motherfuckers showed up. This band brought people out. They're on tour right now. They're a decent-sized band. And uh, just fucking wiling out, right? I'm hanging from the ceiling, wiling out. <laughs> our whole thing is again do it with passion yeah when you hang up this podcast you hang it up with passion jay <laughs> right? and some friends came and i have some friends in austin that that run the food and beverage for for uh not austin city the austin city limits but south by southwest and so my, my boy comes we're all talking and us and the headliner are sharing gear and the headliner has their fans helping them load stuff out. And a drunk driver comes and hits their van. Damn. They have to jump in it. The drunk driver kept going. Damn. And one of my friend's friends jumped in front of the drunk driver to finally make the person stop. Damn. I walk over to their tour manager and say, hey. Because we all we had rented vans. I was like, hey, call the police, get a police report for your insurance, and we'll we'll load your stuff in our in our van. And if you can't make the show, we'll figure out a way to all roll together. Right. One of the people hears and one of their fans here and go, Ab Cab, all cops are bad, Ab Cab, Ab Cab. And I and I and I was almost lost my shit. Because I'm like, motherfucker, I didn't ask you to give the cop a goddamn medal. You need a police report for insurance purposes. You almost got fucking hit. Oh, God. Like, what is wrong with you? And so, right? So the, the tour man, like, okay, 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 okay. She, they're they're trying to they're trying to like keep it together and like okay do this but because the fans are like looking like mm, sell out mm, call the cops and so we're loading our shit so at this point my band we've had enough these guys have had enough they're like Jay this is too much I was like I feel you I'm mad right now and so the person that hit them I can't remember the exact make and model of the car but it was a decent car 
they looked like they had just came from like a club or something and it was drunk it was a yeah. white chick and she had like two black homies and it was fucked up and so the headliner's like oh what a shame because the cop is making the, the young lady come out and do the do the drunk test do the walk and she's wasted and she goes what a shame this is happening to a woman I was like, she was drunk and she hit your car. She almost killed you and a fan. And you want to sit here and weep? Look at the outfit. She came from the club. She was having fun. She didn't come from the factory. (laughs) What's wrong with you? (laughs) What's wrong with all of y'all? What society do you think you live in where you can have people wasted plowing into you and your car and other people and then go tisk tisk? I was like, look, man, you don't need to put I don't the woman doesn't need to get put under the jail. Mm-hmm. I get that. I get that. Yeah, but maybe uh no more driving license for you. You got it. You Sorry, you got to sit down for a little bit. It's, yeah. You almost killed somebody. Yeah. And y'all are mad at me that I said, call, for insurance purposes? Mm-hmm. I didn't say call the police so justice could be served. I just said, <laughs> you, your, your rental van got hit. Make sure you get a police report. Sometimes you got to call the fucking cops, man. It's just like reality, you know? It was, but I never saw... In my life, because again, I deal with this for a living at the time, and nobody would question that. It's how we ate. Me and my ex, when we toured, we toured 100 to 150 shows a year in various right. parts of the planet. It's how we ate. If our van or rental car would have mm. got hit, we would have got to call the police. It's, it's not like, again, we're not asking for justice to get served. We're not supporting the patriarchy. It's just the world in which we live in. Mm -hmm. And these cats were trying to make it out to be, I don't even know what they were trying to make it out to be. But anyway, I got yelled at the next night and the load in as we're loading their stuff in the venue. And I was throwing it into the middle of the street in Albuquerque, New Mexico. I was just taking their heads. I was like, fuck. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I got grabbed by my other guitar player and the bartender at that venue saw us and heard us yelling and invited us in, gave us all free stuff and free food and drinks. And I calmed down and we just drove home. <laughs> I don't care if the rest of the shows are, they were all, they were all sold out and great shows and major markets were like, yeah, we'd rather have our sanity. And then we ended up stopping at a reservation in Arizona and hanging out there for a day. And it was it was the greatest time that I ever spent. That whole tour was one of the greatest times I ever spent with with a bunch of dudes in a in a van before. And and uh I met some wonderful people that are that are fans of of the show. This is revolution that really understood what we were trying to do. And um so I'm thankful that those people were brave enough to take us on tour because they were playing in spaces where there were no, no cis men, cis had, had men. 
and uh, th- which was like, oh, really? They're like, yeah, you're the first his headman to ever be in here. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> like I'm trying, I'm trying not to be an asshole. Like, let me know if I'm out of line. Like, I don't know. And and uh, <laughs> I didn't. I I the whole thing. I was like, I, man, I, I was really hoping that I was gonna be playing in front of all these leftists, and I did. I didn't. <laughs> these these cats were not the people that they they weren't who I thought they were going to be mm. and um you know I, I, the more I want to say the more I'm going to I'm just going to keep my mouth shut mm. I, I hope that's enough well you gave us lots of you gave us lots of juicy gossip there so thank you yeah. um so yeah uh do you want to just to wrap up give our fans just like some information about how they can find out more support your work etc um, music, yeah. the podcast, your writing. You know, the, the music is always been all me, mm-hmm. um, and now it's more so all me because I moved to Mexico. Um, but I still record stuff under the name Bitter Lake. It's okay. more stuff that I want to do, so it's a lot of it. Like I released a record or an EP called Black Yacht Rock, which was literally just a joke with my my co-host, who is a slightly older than me black man that grew up with eighties. Um, quote unquote black music which is you know very very bourgeois music you can hear negroes playing at the vineyard martha's vineyard so jokingly i call the album black yacht rock and the song titles are like uh black yacht rock these negroes have air force ones on at the vineyard which is kind of a joke about black people being at martha's vineyard that aren't from rich black families and uh bill cosby is black excellence um they're <laughs> <laughs> just you know they're instrumental pieces and and they were they were fun to to make um and the titles were were more of me thumbing my nose at the black bourgeoisie um there's still definitely bitter like stuff that i'm slowly releasing on spotify now because nice. before I would, when i would put music out on spotify um they would not let me play it on youtube so they would ban oh my show maybe they they show down for my own music so now i put all that stuff up on on spotify but my my main thing that i do is this is revolution podcast it's literally my only job outside of writing which i think for me it's all the same thing this is revolution also encompasses all the writing that i do um i i write I haven't written one for a while because my last column was for damage but uh, i do have a column in sublation that i wrote Mm. um I have a show where we air about five episodes a week. It's a revolution podcast. You can find it everywhere. That's crazy how much you guys do. That's awesome. Um, I'm blessed to have uh, really nice people that want to be part of what we do and believe in the vision of this show, which is to have conversations kind of like we're having right now mm-hmm. um, because we don't have all the answers and, and, I, mm-hmm. and I hope I don't come off like I know everything or I have all the answers because I, I do not. It's okay, man. I have all the answers. <laughs> I believe it. I, Jay, I, I really, I respect you um, so much. And I think you're, you're brilliant. And oh, thank you, man. Somebody hit me up the other day. They're like, I finally listened to that episode where you had Jay on from the effing cancel pod. That was such a good show. And the way he handled Pascal and da, 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 da. I was like, he's, he's a great dude. And I was kind of, I was, awed by his writing that's how i first found him and uh 
And so I, I wanted to talk to him. I, I've, I don't, I treat my show like I treat the way I do music. I dig what I dig. I don't have guilty pleasures. Mm-hmm. I like shitty movies. I like women with bad attitudes. <laughs> <laughs> Used shit, you know. <laughs> I found yeah, my yeah. stars. You know what I mean? Like that's I'm that guy. And I'm I'm that way with the way I find stuff too. And I came across something you wrote. I think it was on Instagram or something. And I was like, oh, I get this cat on the show, man. I, think, I dig this. I dig this. And so that that's my show. It's stuff that I find that I dig. We don't go trying to find the hot left celebrity, which I think is the grossest thing ever. Because mm. a left celebrity. That's the world we live in. Yeah. Think about that for a second. That's capitalist realism it. again. Yeah. Left celebrities. We got the answer to Donald Trump. Cornell West. He was in the Matrix. Fucking A. So yeah, man, it's, it's, it's a, it's a fun show. We get serious. We definitely get silly. And uh, I have a heavy metal intro that people hate. That's what I say to people. That hate. Yeah. Love that. Okay. Well, thanks so much, man. Thanks for coming on. And we'll uh, link all that in the show notes for people to go check it out. Definitely. Um, yeah. We really appreciate you coming on, man. And I definitely, uh, I recommend that all of our listeners should go check out. This is revolution. It's a great podcast. Yeah, and also check out bitter Lake. Like I was oh, yeah. like, also, yeah, what fucking heavy, man. yeah. Yes. Like your vocals, extremely impressive. So thank you. I don't That's know if random. I can do that anymore. Uh, it's very like it's hard to do that. Jay also has uh, a really yes. good screaming voice. I'm like I I can't understand how people do it, but I'm impressed. So <laughs> definitely go check I, that out. I want to do it one more time before I say it's done. But the band now, there's other people in other bands, and I live down here, and <sighs> you know how it is, Jay. You got to find a way. You got to find a way. Oh, um, can I just say right, thank man. you guys for doing what you guys do? Oh. I wish you guys continued success in this in this uh, podcast endeavor. I see that you're almost up to uh, 60, 70 shows, so you'll be at 100 before you know it. So, yeah, we definitely do way less than you. So. <laughs> but yeah, thanks. Yeah, thank you we so much. Appreciate man. that.